Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. Ten years ago, the Arab Spring took the world by surprise, profoundly shaking the status quo in North Africa and the Middle East and bringing hope for a new democratic beginning in that long-suffering region. After several regimes were non-violently toppled in rapid succession through peaceful pressure from the streets, reactionary forces in the region regrouped and launched fierce counter-revolutions in certain countries and outright civil war in others. Today, we take a historical look at the past decade and try to evaluate what progress may have been achieved in spite of the setbacks suffered by the Arab Spring in recent years with Egyptian veteran journalist and activist Hossam El-Hamalawi. He spoke with Khalil Bendib from his home in exile in Berlin. Hossam, back in the 70s, I believe, when asked by a Western journalist, Xu Enlai, the late prime minister of uh, China, when they asked him uh, what he thought of the French Revolution, he replied, it's still too early to say. You know, Chinese have a long-term <laughs> view of things. He was thinking it's been, what, a couple of centuries or less, and wasn't, it wasn't too early to say. So even the outcome of the French Revolution is still being decided in some ways, with democracy in France and the West generally teetering on and backsliding in some cases into perhaps some uh, neo-feudal order that we call uh, neoliberalism. As we look back on 10 years of the so-called Arab Spring, can we at least first begin by trying to define what the correct term might be? Is it, was it an insurrection, a revolution, an intifada, something else? When we look back at some point in history, what is the exact nature of what happened in 2011? And is there a name for it yet? I usually uh, use the term Arab Spring because it's uh, the most common term. Um, and although I, I have reservations, and it's not only me, but in general, some people have reservations on the term, but we use it out of convenience because that's what everyone says. And uh, usually people would understand what you're referring to when you say it. But of course, it's a contested term because number one, it wasn't just the Arabs who were involved in this uh, event or series of events. There were other um, ethnic and cultural groups who were part of these uprisings. Secondly, the term spring sometimes is used by those who try to smear the process of political change viewing it as somehow to be foreign instigated, like those who were claiming that the revolutions were the work of the CIA and some Western conspiracies. But in general, I usually refer to it as the regional revolutions or regional uprisings, because it was not just Egypt or Tunisia who were active in 2011, this number one, and number two, I think there were, what happened in 2011 was yet an evidence for the millionth time that there is something called the domino effect, 
which revolutionaries have to understand the art and science of it, not just because of issues related to internationalism and solidarity, but it's because the fate of your own revolution depends sometimes on the success of revolutions elsewhere, and you cannot create a democracy while you are an island in an ocean of dictatorships. And more or less, that was one of the main reasons why the revolts were defeated. So I would refer to them as regional uprisings or regional revolutions. The term revolution itself is pregnant with uh, debate and controversy. The term revolution itself is, is widely complicated and different people will, will understand different things. But each region is different and has different trajectories. Europe for centuries went through a long period of dormancies in the Middle Ages, but then came back to the fore with a vengeance, with the Renaissance and the post-Renaissance and colonialism and imperialism. But North Africa and what is commonly referred to as the Arab world has gone through many ups and downs ever since the golden age of Andalusia five centuries ago and the advent of European colonialism. I know it's a very vast question, but where do you see the, our region, the Middle East and North Africa region in its historical evolution in terms of human rights and cultural reawakening? This spring is happening in a certain context. That's a very good question, Khalil. And you're right, such questions they need volumes in order to answer, not just one question or even one episode. But I will try to be as brief as possible and as general as possible while I'm answering this question. Revolutions are uh, political processes that basically do not happen in 18 days only. They do not happen within the span of one year. But it is an ongoing process which go through several stages. And usually the insurrection or the uprising is is only one stage of it. But it does take time for anyone who's observing and following these revolutions, let alone if he or she were participants in it, to judge whether they were defeated or were they victorious. And usually after the defeat or the victory, the story is not over because there are repercussions. I was born in 1977. So during the 1990s, I was a teenager. And around the time I got politically active by the mid-1990s, when I became a university student, the kind of stuff that I used to hear not just from foreigners or those whom we can describe as Orientalists or racists, but it was also the kind of talk that I would hear from my own Egyptian colleagues at university and outside university, that Egyptians and Arabs we've always lived under tyranny and we know no other language but tyranny. We are used to the whip. We have always worshipped our pharaohs. We have built them pyramids. Yes, Mubarak is a tyrant, but that's how things have always been. The Egyptians never revolted against their own ruler. You are dreaming of a revolution that will never happen. You're not realistic. You're this, you're that. And I guess this was a time 
where the level of social and political dissent in Egypt and the Arab world in general were very low. The same countries that we are talking about today as instigators or as players in the Arab Spring, by the way, they had their own uh, spring previously, quarter of a century or more than quarter of a century ago. And more or less, it was governed by similar dynamics. For example, Egypt had its bread uprising, the so-called bread uprising in January 1977. And this was not happening while, while the region was, God forbid, like an ocean of stability and suddenly Egypt was an exception. But just like 2011, this spread by the domino effect. If you look at the region at that time, Egypt had an uprising in January 1977. Tunisia had a two-day uprising led by the trade unions in 1978. Around the same time, you had the Iranian Revolution, which was an earth-shaking event for the whole region. Morocco uh, as well. Exactly. And Morocco was also going through its uh, turmoil. So as you can see, like, you know, we did have revolts at the time, but there was no YouTube. There was uh, no Twitter. There was no Facebook. And the existence of independent media, like the one that we're talking on, for example, now, or its counterparts, were very, very rare. So as a leftist who was growing up in the 1990s, I didn't know my history. I didn't know my tradition. How would I find out about what happened in 1977? We were only stuck with the state-run uh, newspapers, we didn't have satellite televisions, there was no internet, no YouTube. And in order for you to find out about the history of dissent, you had to exert so much effort into trying to locate these lost pages of our dissident history. And it is natural that following the defeat of those revolutions and or those mini uprisings that happened in the late 70s ushered an era of, of the rise of the right, as well as the decline of the social struggles in general. If you lost a strike yesterday, then most probably you would be more hesitant about going on strike the following day. Unlike the case where you have achieved like a small victory, so at least your appetite and your confidence grows so as to ask for more demands the following day. I mean, I've been talking for long now, I mean, trying to answer your question about what epoch or what era we are in at the moment. And what I'm trying to say is that we go through ups and downs. The 70s were times of upsurge in struggles. The 1980s and 1990s, around the time I started to get politically active, these were eras of decline. These were eras of the rise of the neoliberalism, also the rise of the Islamist movement by both its wings, the armed wing and the reformist wing. This was an era of the decline of the Egyptian and Arab left in general. But it would take us a very long process of revival that started in the year 2000 with the outbreak of the Second Palestinian Intifada to revive once again the tradition of street dissent in Egypt and in the region. And such 
dissident pro-Palestinian solidarity campaign that swept the Arab world was soon to shift its attention into domestic issues, questioning the power of the rulers, questioning the powers of the police and their brutality towards the citizens, questioning the political margin of freedom of speech and expression that we have in Egypt and in the Arab world. And this was to usher a long era of accumulation of dissent that exploded in the uprisings of of 2011. Now, I don't want to get into a game of semantics about whether the revolution got defeated or lost, but in this stage of the revolutionary process that was initiated by the year 2011, unfortunately has met a setback. They were brutally crushed by the uh, regimes in Egypt and in the Arab world. And they coordinated and cooperated with one another in crushing this dissent. So, for example, the counter-revolution or the coup in Egypt that was staged in 2013, spearheaded by Abdel Fattah Sisi, who was back then the Egyptian Minister of Defense, and right now he is our president, this was financed and backed by the Emirates and by Saudi Arabia, in addition to other regional reactionary powers. And the defeat of the revolution in Egypt at the time was empowering for the rest of the tyrannical regimes in the region to escalate their crackdown on dissidents in their own countries. Because, you know, with the law of domino effect, revolutions, victories and defeats, they all spread by the domino effect. If a revolution happens somewhere, this encourages revolutionaries elsewhere to organize and to step forward. And if a revolution gets crushed and brutally defeated, this encourages the other ruling classes in the region to follow suit. So starting from 2013, you can say that the tide changed in favor of reaction, in favor of the counter-revolution, in favor of fascism. So Abdel Fattah Sisi crushed the revolution in Egypt using or perpetrating some of literally the worst massacres in our modern history. In Syria, the regime of al-Assad got more encouraged to start using weapons of mass destruction against its own citizens and to escalate the repression with the help, of course, of the Russians and the Iranians. The Bahrainis were a very tragic story where the people of Bahrain braved bullets, braved repression, braved facing a joint military operations from the GCC countries whereby the Saudis, the Emiratis, and and the others, they sent in their troops to crush the protests. And uh, some really horrible massacres happened, in addition, of course, to the widespread use of torture. And they even stripped citizens from their citizenship, and they threw them, you know, on the borders with Iraq, you know, and they tell them, you know, I mean, just go and find your life away from your home country. So at the moment, the picture might look bleak in some of those countries. However, there is always hope. In the same way that the first wave of uh, the revolt in 2011, 2012, shook the pillars of power in the region, 
temporarily before they got crushed or co-opted in some cases, like the case of Tunisia. This proved to be an inspiring event for the Algerians and for the Sudanese later to step up their organization and to confront their own local regimes respectively. Now, the Sudanese and the Algerians were not sleeping in 2011. They were protesting. And there was some serious, serious protests, especially in the case of Sudan, also in 2013, which witnessed a mini uprising. But just like what we've been talking earlier, if revolution was a process, this does not mean that all countries have to go through the same process at the same time with the same level. The level of the revolutionary political process maturity differs from one place to the other. I mean, I try to answer your your no, question. It's a I mean, very good yeah. uh, broad perspective you gave us here. I'm glad you were able to do that. And I'm also happy to learn that 1977 was both the uh, <laughs> year of birth and it coincided with, with some <laughs> unrest in Egypt. So the two may not be a complete coincidence. <laughs> it's good to hear. I remember in 1977, Anwar said that who has been lionized in the West as this man of peace, actually shooting at his own people in the streets, killing people who were hungry and asking for bread. I remember distinctly that. But another date that wasn't mentioned, and because it's not necessarily directly relevant to our region, is 2008. In so many ways, one might say that the Middle East and North Africa region has served as a canary in the coal mine of world democracy with popular unrest starting there and spreading to Europe. If you remember the Indignados movement in Spain, among others, and the US, the Occupy movement, followed by a neo, what I would call fascistic, what we call often here uh, the populist governments popping up in the US, the UK, Italy, Eastern Europe, and Brazil. Philippines and so on, as well as the worsening of autocracies such as Russia and China. Is the entire world following in the footsteps of Egypt and about to enter a deeper era of counter-revolution? I know it's a very big picture I'm trying to paint here, but do you see a correlation? You were saying how you know, these movements tend to influence one another. Yes, uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we are all moving within the same stream or the same current. It's not necessarily because everyone is looking at Egypt and copying. I mean, of course, it's not as simplistic and as superficial as that. And it wouldn't be that accurate. However, in the same way that in the 70s, like 1977 in Egypt, was not isolated from regional and international events. 2008 and 2011 and other are remarkable in our region were also part of, of a global context. So you cannot, for example, separate 1977 in Egypt from the 1974 Portuguese Revolution, from the 1975 fall of fascism in Spain, from the 1975 defeat of the Americans in Vietnam, from all sorts of social mobilizations that were happening in Southern Europe, especially in Italy at the time. These were times of, of mass global polarization. And Egypt, as well as the Arab world or our region, no matter how you, you want to call it, 
is part of this global context. So if you fast forward to 2008, this was a time when we had our mini uprising in the city of Mahalla. And I recall I was in the U.S. at the time and we did some yes. uh, interviews. A number uh, of back shows then. about it, yeah. Exactly. And this was creating so much interest in Egypt for a time. The events in Mahalla were not separated from the rest of Egypt or the region as well as the rest of the world. Because only one month after the Mahalla uprising was crushed, we got another uprising that was similar to it, but didn't get as much media attention in the northern city of Al-Brollus which is in the province of Kafr sheikh north of Egypt. And it's a community of um, largely fishermen. And the protest continued among the Egyptian workers, and we started getting our so-called Cairo's Hyde Park. And this was when the Egyptian workers for months staged open-ended sit-ins and occupations around our parliament uh, in downtown Cairo, in the heart of the capital. Which was unthinkable but, at the time. This is before the Hadir Square. People didn't exactly. do that. <laughs> exactly. And um, people on the left, like you and I, we saw the potential in those uh, protests, while fellow Egyptians who were part of the, um, the liberal groups, as well as some left-wing groups, were dismissive of those protests or did not give them much importance since the workers were not raising overtly political demands and people were looking in a very dismissive way at the economic demands that they were raising. However, people like you and I, we understand that such economic demands are in the heart of the political process, are in the heart of the project for social justice, and at the same time, they are political, although they are economic. If workers manage to assemble in downtown Cairo around the symbol of power, which is the parliament, in a country that has been ruled by the emergency law that bans the gathering of more than five citizens under any circumstance, then these workers are breaking, in effect, the emergency law. That's a political action. If workers are demanding the impeachment of their corrupt management that is usually tied to the National Democratic Party or to state security police, they are basically challenging the power structures in our society. But again, I mean, when I meet here in Berlin, uh, some of the Syrian exiles, they tell me that at the time in Syria, prior to 2011, activists over there were watching what the Egyptians were doing and they were following suit and they were getting inspired what they were doing. I heard the same by activists in Yemen, by activists in other countries. Thanks again to the age of satellite television and the age of the internet and social media, as well as independent airwaves like yours, the word can spread much faster and it can inspire others into action. So 2011, when it happened in Egypt and in Tunisia, and the whole region was shaking, this proved as an inspiration for several movements, like, as you said, Occupy, you know, I mean, in the West, in the US and in Europe, those who took to the streets and to the public squares in the European capitals to 
try to call for a different world free of capitalism, free of oppression, free of sexism and any sort of discrimination, they cited Tahrir and the Arab Spring as one of their sources uh, of inspiration. Now, this wave, you can say, was more or less confronted and contained by 2013 in Egypt here by the coup. And in the West, you can say by the election of uh, center-left governments that failed miserably to articulate the demands of the public. And you started getting the shift to the right and the rise of uh, the neo-fascists in Europe and, of course, in the U.S., where you have a vibrant uh, far-right scene, unfortunately. And the election of uh, Donald Trump four years ago was to provide such turn to the right with a further boost and further encouragement. And we hope that at least now the Americans have managed to put on good resistance to Trump and to the powers of the police and to the structures of power in the U.S., and in Europe also, there is mass counter-mobilization against the Nazis and the far right. And in our region, the social forces that led to the Arab Spring are being revived incrementally and very slowly at the moment. I'm not trying to suggest that a revolt is going to happen in Egypt tomorrow or elsewhere, but I'm saying that the tide is slowly changing once again in favor of dissent. When are we going to see real change or the impact of this incremental change? I think it will take us some time because the level of defeat in 2013 in Egypt and elsewhere was so severe, was so catastrophic, that reviving the activist structures that can sustain mobilizations for a long time will take us some time period. It's not going to happen quickly. Welcome back. I am Malihira Zazan, and you are listening to KPFA in Berkeley and KFCF in Fresno. You have been listening to Khalil Bendib's interview with Hossam El Hamalawi. I'm going to take a short break to ask for your pledge of support. Because of the dangerous winter storm, Millions of Texans have lost electricity, including the call center we have been using during our membership drive. So we can take your pledges only through our website at kpfa.org. Please join others who have gone to KPFA's website and have donated to keep this radio station on the air. We have been very fortunate in the past to be able to raise the funds we need to keep this independent radio station on the air. We need to raise $2,000 this hour. And at a time when we see the Wall Street takeover of the newspaper industry, the consolidation of the news industry, it's critical for KPFA to stay on the air. Please go to kpfa.org where you can donate and also see a list of gifts that we are offering. We only depend on your financial support. We bring you locally produced programs, including Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. No commercials, music not often heard anywhere else, issues discussed that often do not get airplay. And KPFA is really part of our common good that we need to support. And I hope you do that by going to kpfa.org. Now let's go back and hear another excerpt 
from the interview with Egyptian activist Hossam al-Hamalawi. We've seen uh, in the age of Trump, as you were touching on just now, how easy it has been for dictators of the world to unite uh, with unabashed alliances between the U.S. and the monarchies of the Gulf and the overt and complete support of America to the maximalist expansionism of the Zionist uh, regime in Palestine. How do you think this avowed alliance between the U.S. and colonialism in, in Palestine and now in Morocco as well, in the Western Sahara, is going to play out in our region in the medium terms. Certainly, the Western democracy haven't seemed overly concerned by the return of even harsher dictatorship in Egypt, not even the lip service we used to hear anymore. And they're happy to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. With Trump now gone, at least temporarily, (laughs) and we hope for good, but his movement, do you think that the resumption of the old lip service that was always paid by Washington to the idea, at least the notion of human rights, is going to improve things in places like Egypt, even slightly? Or is the damage to the U.S.'s uh, waning world leadership already too far advanced? It's not my first time to hear, you know, I mean, such question uh, since Biden's election. People like myself, like yourself, in the dissident and the progressive circles uh, in Egypt and elsewhere have been trying to speculate what the future would be like. Now that Trump is temporarily, as you say, out of the picture, we don't know still if this is the end of him or not. I mean, I so wish, of course. But I don't think that there will be radical change in terms of the U.S. foreign policy and its relations to the Arab dictators or the Zionist uh, settler colonial regime in, in Palestine. But there will be a slight change. I will try to explain myself more. Under Trump, Sisi, Mohammed bin Salman, and the others could go on a rampage, left and right, locking up dissidents, uh, assassinating them, torturing them of all shades. Historically, the world has shown over and over that they were ready to turn a blind eye uh, when it comes to the treatment or mistreatment of terror suspects. Now, those terror suspects, I mean, first, they are not terrorists unless they are convicted in a fair trial. Secondly, even if they are the most notorious terrorists on the face of the planet, they are human beings and they have rights under local and international law, and they should be tried fairly. But the world did not really care much when regimes, whether they are democratic or not, were announcing the killing of this terrorist, the assassination of that terrorist, or the locking up for a long time under horrible conditions for terrorist X or terrorist Y. But usually the world reserved some level of criticism for the sake of PR, for the sake of uh, responding to public pressures, for, you know, a million reasons. They used to voice their concerns sometimes over the arrest of human rights defenders, over the attacks on religious minorities, on the crackdown on bloggers and uh, the free press. These were the kind of issues that the Western imperialist regimes 
used to cynically voice their concerns over when it comes to our case. But under Trump, he didn't really give a damn about anything. I mean, he was someone who was flirting in public with uh, Sisi and commending him on his taste in shoes and <laughs> and in, in, in public, you know, rallies, he used to encourage American police to torture suspects. I mean, yeah. here you have the president of the free world, of the biggest democracy on the planet. And he's saying that police are treating, you know, criminal suspects really very nicely and they shouldn't be doing that. So he is, of course, sending a message to his proxies on what is allowed under his command or on his watch. Now that he's finally gone and we have Biden in the White House, let's remember that Biden was someone who refused to label Hosni Mubarak as a dictator at the beginning of the Egyptian revolution when he was still a vice president for Obama. And he cited that Hosni Mubarak was a friend of the US and Israel, hence he's not a dictator. And, you know, his track record really when it comes to courting Middle Eastern dictatorship is not really that great. But at the same time, number one, nothing can be worse than Trump, no matter whom you get into the White House uh, from the Democratic Party at this point, would definitely be not as bad as Trump. Trump has lowered the bar so much that even if you get Hosni Mubarak, you know, I mean, into the White House, you know, he would still be a freedom fighter in comparison. Secondly, Biden had raised so much hopes among the progressive circles in the US and among the civil rights campaigners and among actually campaigners of all sorts. You know, the Bernie campaign, more or less, you know, they went in the end, most of it to support uh, his candidacy after Bernie, you know, fell out from the race. So he will have to respond to some level of pressure from his power base. So he might pressure CC into releasing some of the high-profile lawyers or high-profile human rights activists or some bloggers, some journalists. But he will not take the phone and call up CC to tell him to release the 60,000 political prisoners. And he would not cut the military aid, for example, to Egypt. There is some level for lobbying that we can do uh, at the moment to secure the release of, of a number of our comrades. But at the end of the day, I don't really put so much faith uh, on anyone who's in the White House. Uh, the COVID pandemic has not made things easier for the Arab Spring. In Algeria, for a year, Nothing the Algerian government came up with seemed to be able to dissuade popular demonstrations until COVID forced the movement to put a rest to it. In Tunisia, the government has also used the pandemic as an excuse and justification to ban demonstrations. How do you think this major monkey wrench is affecting the prospect of popular movements in the region and worldwide? Uh, the pandemic has instigated some militarized response from our Arab regimes, as well as, you know, the, the rest of actually regimes uh, on the face of the planet, including the Western world. Every single state and every single government, with varying levels and degrees, of course, tried to weaponize the pandemic into 
public and social control via policing in the name of protecting the public from the pandemic. In the case of Algeria, unfortunately, after the referendum that, you know, witnessed uh, mass boycotts, actually, but still went ahead, the Algerian state has been cracking down heavily on dissidents. And that's even before the pandemic. But this took a much harsher level under the pandemic, whereby journalists are detained in Algeria, human rights activists are detained in Algeria, Hirak organizers, those who were uh, involved in the Hirak or the movement, are also being rounded up. And if your listeners want to learn more information about this, I think Human Rights Watch has been doing a good job in terms of uh, following up on the arrests So I would recommend that they check their website because this is not really making news headlines anymore in the international media. In the case of Tunisia, the crackdown on the protests this month was, of course, legitimized or was justified in the eyes of the state uh, in the name of fighting a pandemic. And this is an excuse also that the Lebanese state has adopted vis-a-vis the protesters in Tripoli recently and in elsewhere in the Lebanese cities. But even if there wasn't the pandemic, they would have come up with any other excuse. You know, that's what our regimes do all the time. Before the pandemic, there was terrorism. Before terrorism, it was communist subversion. Before communist subversion, it was foreign spies. There are always something that would justify repression. However, I'm not saying that they are largely successful because as you and I, you know, are talking now, I mean, there are still protests in Tunisia. There are still very militant uh, protests that have been taking place in Tripoli, in Lebanon. I see also the mobilizations around police brutality in the U.S. They maybe have gone down a little bit after the election of Biden, because some mass movement are still having some sort of hopes that, you know, the administration is going to deliver some of its promises. Of course, you and I know that this is not going to happen, but the movement still continues. And also in Europe, where I'm currently based now, the counter-police brutality and the counter-fascist mobilizations are still also happening every now and then. So yes, they will try to weaponize the pandemic, but they can't be successful forever, in my view. Welcome back. I am Malihera Zazan, and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on KPFA in Berkeley and KFCF in Fresno. I'm going to take another short break to ask for your support. If you are tuning in now, because of the dangerous winter storm, millions of Texans have lost electricity, including the call center we have been using during our membership drives. So we can take your pledges only through our website at kpfa.org. We are also fundraising during a pandemic when tens of millions of people are struggling to make ends meet. So if you are able to pitch in and support KPFA and Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, please do so by going to kpfa.org, where you can also pick from a list of thank you gifts. Please go to kpfa.org and click on Donate or Support Us on the front page. KPFA is celebrating Black History Month 
featuring the work of Maya Angelou and Langston Hughes in a special gift to everyone who donates to KPFA in our winter membership drive. KPFA.org. Let's go back and hear another excerpt of Khalil's interview with Egyptian activist Hossam El Hamalawi. You were speaking earlier, you alluded to the situation in Tunisia, you said the movement has been co-opted. Tunisia, at least on the surface, has attained a status of democracy in formal terms, but is still dealing with major problems in terms of social justice and poverty and inequality. In, in 2013, which threatens its status as a democracy. But in 2013 and 2014, I remember that while Nahda was in power, Tunisia learned from Egypt's experience and managed to avoid some of the Muslim Brotherhood's and Morsi's mistakes in Egypt. As an Egyptian, a journalist and as an activist, looking back this short 10 years of the Arab Spring, what lessons do you think might be learned from Tunisia's relative success and also from its failures? I know it's a broad question again, but what could have been done, for example, in Egypt that was done in Tunisia and wasn't done in Egypt? I'm not sure that this is how we should phrase it. What can we learn from the successes of Tunisia? Because, okay, I mean, what I'll say might upset some people. Because Tunisia is always presented as the success model, the only country that escaped the fate of uh, the Arab winter, you know, as they put it, the only country that did not witness large scale massacres like what happened in, in Egypt or in Syria, for example. And people can still elect freely their own government. But at the same time, I do not think that Tunisia is a success model. And for me, the revolution, you don't have to say that it failed or it got defeated, but I would say that it got co-opted. It doesn't mean because there were no massacres that basically the revolution has achieved success. Because if you look at the two main factors that triggered the Arab Spring in Tunisia and in Egypt, actually, you know, and, and elsewhere... They were two. You can limit them down or narrow them down to two factors. One is police brutality and political repression. Two is the lack of social justice. Now, if you look at these two arenas when it comes to Tunisia, you'll find that the revolution has not really achieved much. Uh, In terms of political repression, unfortunately, the Tunisian police is still as brutal as it was under Ben Ali. Yes, you don't get the very overt appearances of police brutality in terms of, I remember literally, if you arrived as a journalist in Tunisia, you would be followed minute by minute, literally minute by minute. So these appearances of a police state might not be there, but the police still is involved in brutality, is still involved in the suppression of peaceful dissent, as the shocking pictures have been coming out in this month from Tunisia. Secondly, when it comes to the issue of social justice, the unemployment and the distribution of wealth in Tunisia is still a huge problem. In the case of Tunisia, the Islamists there were much smarter than than the Egyptian Islamists. 
And that's because also they have a long history of people might disagree over the reasons, but in general, the Tunisian Nahda was always regarded as much more politically mature than the Ikhwan in Egypt or the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. So they've managed to maneuver so as to protect themselves from the fate of Morsi. But how did they do it? They actually did it by submitting concessions and agreeing on alliances with figures from the old regime, as well as um, the current political establishment, which should have ended up in prison. They allied themselves with it. So in Tunisia, the peace was kept by a very delicate balance between the Islamists, between the remnants of the old regime, and the military. So this like triangle has been keeping things calm. But if you look at the goals of the revolution, they have not, they have not been achieved, uh, unfortunately. Egypt, since 2013, when Sisi took over and brought on the full counter-revolution to Egypt, has seen much less popular dissent. It's been put down so bloodily that even people who are used to Mubarak have been shocked. And a certain sense of stability, if you want to call it that in quotes, has been restored to the detriment of human rights and any dreams of democracy and social justice. Before COVID, tourism, which is an important part of the economy in Egypt, was recovering. And we seem to be back to, to just the darkest days of Mubarak, except worse. Ten years after the ousting of Mubarak, and despite this terrible regression of democracy there, what subtle, if any, any, any subtle or positive, unspoke or unspoken positive change has been adopted by the military dictatorship without fanfare, or has nothing positive come out so far out of this, uh, this revolution in 2011? There is nothing positive that came out from that military counter-revolutionary regime. I mean, again, the revolution broke out because of police brutality and political repression on the one hand, and because of the lack of economic justice on the other hand. And when it comes to these uh, two issues, Sisi did not only like not provide answers to it, but he made things much worse. And right now in Egypt, if you want to describe the economic system, it's really very strange. It's a hybrid between neoliberalism on steroids and at the same time, militarization and intervention of the military institution to act as a businessman, as an importer, as an exporter in literally in almost every single sector of, of the economy now, the military is present in a way that did not exist before 2011. So in that regards, there is nothing really positive that came out of it. But at the same time, if your question was about, is there anything positive that came out from, from the revolution and the experience of 2011 till 2013? In spite yeah. of the counter-revolution, yeah. Exactly. Despite the setbacks and despite the defeat, I shamelessly use the word defeat because I think we have to be realistic about where we stand so as to be able to strategize in a correct manner for the future. And it is one thing to say that, oh, the revolution is ongoing, it's still in the streets. So you would build strategically in a direction, 
But it's another thing to say that, oh, the revolution got besieged or defeated. Hence, we need a different strategy to secure our victory uh, in the future. So are there any positive things that came out from 2011 despite the counter-revolution and despite the defeat in 2013? I would say yes, that there are few things that in the end we can build on for the next thing to come uh, in the future. One of these things, for example, I think it's in the sphere of um, the rights of gender and gender-related causes. Despite the fact that sexual harassment and sexism and issues related to gender faced a severe setback following the coup, of course, just like the case of other civil liberties issues in Egypt, but women have learned a lot throughout the uprising and they have put their tools into action to confront sexual harassment in the workplace and in the public space and even within the ranks of the activist community itself. So over the past few years, we've had a very vibrant and strong Me Too movement in Egypt. Among the things that we've learned or among the the gains that we have managed to gain throughout the uprising is that we have seen a glimpse of what collective action can bring us. We have seen a glimpse of the Egyptian people who has long been described by Westerners and by locals alike as docile, as incompetent, as cowards who would never rebel against their own ruler. We have a revolution that really created wonders in two or three years. And this entire revolution, unlike 1977, is well documented. It's documented on YouTube. It's documented on Facebook. It's documented on Twitter. It's documented in all sorts of online material, which is easily accessible to the average person. Unlike the case in the past, where you had to be some really a high-profile expert with access to libraries so as to be able to learn about your own history. This is not the case now. So this means that when we get another uprising in the future, because I do believe that this will happen sometime in the future, we will not be starting from square zero or square one. We would have a tradition that's in front of our eyes that we are building on and adding to and tweaking other than the case of 2011 when we started the revolution and people were all the time looking at one another of what are we going to do next because we never really experienced such event before. Over a wider horizon, when you look at movements worldwide that started maybe a couple of decades ago, like the 1999 Seattle uprising and the Occupy Wall Streets and the Arab Spring, Hong Kong, Chile, all over the world, these revolutions that have been pretty horizontal, as they call them, leaderless for the most part, often spontaneous, although, as you explained very well, they're not accidental. <laughs> they're the results of, of major buildup decades. What lessons can be drawn from these new types of movements that are not organized as, as you know, as something we might have seen a hundred years ago? I'm not one of those who support labeling the uprisings that we had as leaderless revolutions or as horizontal movements. 
I know that sections of the international left, mainly among the autonomous movements and among the anarchists and sections of the revolutionary left, were very keen about presenting those uprisings as leaderless. But when you look into it carefully, you'll find that it was a myth. And no, there was leadership for the uprising, but it wasn't necessarily like like in a classic form, like what you will read in history books about a single mass revolutionary party, for example, you know, leading the masses in this uprising and directing its tempo. We didn't have that. Uh, we didn't have a Bolshevik party in Egypt. But on the other hand, um, you have to think about, so who were organizing those checkpoints around Tahrir? who were printing those leaflets and determining that we're going to have a one million person march on X day or Y day, who went to negotiate with, for example, on several occasions throughout the uprising, who spoke on TV and was given like coverage. If you look at at all of these things that I'm talking about and you connect the dots, you will find that, no, there were structures. Starting from January 25th itself, 2011, which did not start because of a Facebook event, but because it was preceded by meetings, series of meetings of Egypt's opposition forces of virtually all currents, except for the Islamists in the beginning. And these representatives of the political forces, they met, they agreed on that day, they agreed on the banners, they agreed on the slogans, they agreed on the demands, they agreed on the the routes of the marshes that will start from X neighborhood or Y neighborhood into Tahrir. The ceiling of the demands at the time, by the way, if you remember, was only the impeachment of General Habib al-Adli, who was the interior minister. And the second demand was investigating police torturers and stopping police torture. All of these things were agreed upon by political forces, the same political forces that also organized the checkpoints around Tahrir, the same political forces that convened to agree that we're going to have protests on that day or on this day. So it was not completely a leaderless revolution or some horizontal, you know, I mean, movement But at the same time, it's natural, like any revolution throughout human history, that spontaneity plays a role in the uprising. For example, on January 25th itself, it started by the veteran activist community calling for the impeachment of Habib al-Adli, but then their call was responded to by roughly half a million protesters on the night of January 25th. So the ceiling of demands was raised to a shab you read Isqat al-Nizam, that people want the downfall of the regime. And spontaneity pushed everyone's ceiling even higher. So Marxists understand this, understand the law of dialectics. There is always a dialectical relationship between the organized forces and between spontaneity. Sometimes spontaneity would have the upper hand. On the other hand, uh, uh, sometimes the organized actions would take the upper hand. But they go on hand in hand all the time and they interact with one another. And actually, I would argue that one of the main reasons our revolution in Egypt got defeated was that the revolutionary forces 
in the Egyptian revolution were not organized enough so as to compete with the reformists and with the Islamists and with the liberal forces that was keen from the beginning on achieving some level of cosmetic reforms, but keeping the power structures as they were. So this is one of the most important lessons that we have to put in mind for our next uprising. Hossam El-Hamalawi is a veteran Egyptian journalist and activist based in Berlin. You can read Hossam's articles and see his entire photography archive from 2003 to present at arabawi.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. <laughs> And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Aish, <laughs> Aish,